Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, Certified Religious Transition and Trauma Recovery Coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Welcome, everyone, to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. This week, we are continuing what we were talking about last week, and we're talking about roles in dysfunctional families, and specifically this week, we are diving further into the role of the scapegoat. I have been absolutely fascinated learning about dysfunctional families. I've been studying it now for a few months, and I keep wanting to dive in further and further There are so many applications to many of our own families. A lot of us that come from high demand religion, it seems that high demand religion and dysfunction in the family are very closely tied together. Um, I don't have a client that doesn't have some of these dysfunctional aspects to their family. And as I've been doing more research, they're actually finding that dysfunction in families is more common than healthy functioning families. So I have a feeling there's a lot of generational trauma that's been passed down here. And a lot of us are dealing with these sorts of things and high demand religion just kind of exacerbates it. So it all ties together. High demand religion often feeds into this dysfunctional family system. And then the family system sort of reinforces what's going on in the high demand religion. So We're going to just continue to kind of explore these dynamics because I'm finding on the Facebook group and with my clients and people on Instagram, a lot of you are saying this really resonates and it's helping you make sense of why you are the way you are, the reasons that you think and behave the way you do. It's helping you give yourself compassion for how you show up in the world and how you ended up in this place so that you can move forward. And compassion is one of the big things I want us to be able to grow for ourselves, to be able to experience for ourselves. When we can accept and have compassion for ourselves, we can then begin to work through the the healing process and we can begin to change and create a life that feels better for ourselves. And as we show up for ourselves in that way, we create self-trust, which ultimately leads to a place where we have a really beautiful relationship with ourselves. We feel like we're worthy. We feel like we're worthy of love and belonging and of success and pleasure and just all the wonderful things that a life can bring. And that's ultimately my goal with this podcast is I want to help provide you with understanding so that you can give yourself compassion, which will aid you on that journey towards feeling worthy, feeling like you're enough, having that self-worth. So today we are going to be talking about scapegoating And there's so much more we could dig into, but I really want to kind of give you just scapegoating 101. I want you to have a basic understanding of what scapegoating is, why it is utilized, and how that probably showed up in your life, and then how we can begin to heal. So that's kind of the basic overview. Before we hop in, I do want to let you know if you're wanting to contribute to this research, to this podcast, and making it more possible for us to continue to create these episodes and help people to heal and to recover that sense of identity and self-worth, please go over to emancipateyourself.org and click on the contribute button. So as much or as little as you would like to contribute, all of it is very much appreciated and allows me to devote the time and energy and resources to creating this podcast and continuing to bring you this content. I love doing this work. I know several of you have said you love hearing this work, and I want to continue to provide it for as long as I possibly can. I really thoroughly enjoy getting to do this. So A big thank you to those of you who are already supporting. For those of you who are in the Facebook group, if you're not in the Facebook group, head over there. Often we have discussions about topics before I ever have a podcast. So if I'm researching something and I have questions for the Facebook audience, 
I will ask them and ask for people's personal experiences, get their takes on what I'm reading about. I offer tools. I offer journal prompts. Um, we offer all kinds of encouragement. You can ask questions over there and have the rest of the community answer you or validate you. It really is a beautiful place to be held and seen as you're exploring this journey of deconstructing, you know, high demand religious ideologies, as well as high demand family ideologies. A lot of us over there, we have both and we're deconstructing all of it. And it is a safe space to do that. So if that's something that you would like, if you're looking for that kind of support, head over there. We'd love to have you. It's called the Emancipate Yourself group. And the link to it is in the show notes. So please, please join us. We'd love to see you. Or as always, feel free to reach out on Instagram. I get messages daily from people and I love hearing from you. It's my favorite part of what I do is not only researching, but then getting to interact with you and to hear what you thought and how it impacted you and, you know, what, what you would like to hear next. I love hearing all of that. So please don't hesitate to reach out. It is taking me a little bit of time to get to everyone's messages, but I love the messages. My favorite part is interacting back and forth. If you can be patient with me getting back to you, it'll probably take a couple of days. Then, you know, let's do this. Come and communicate with me. I want to hear your thoughts, your ideas. If you disagree, if you agree, if, you know, there's something more that you wish I had explained or, you know, dug into, let me know. These can all be further podcasts. And I want to hear your point of view. Every time someone shares with me what they actually think, what they have actually experienced, it informs me and makes me a better podcaster. It makes me better able to help people and to get information out there that will help you live your best life. All right. With all of that said, let us hop in now to talking about being the scapegoat. Now, there were a couple of you that sent me messages and you said, you know, this is We've been talking a lot about narcissism. I'm not sure if my parents are narcissistic, but I definitely think I was the scapegoat or the golden child or, you know, the lost child in the family, the things we talked about last week. And as I've dug into that, that actually sparked an interest for me to go and research. Is this also available in other dysfunctional family cultures? And it is. You can be the scapegoat in a dysfunctional family that's not necessarily narcissistic. However, there are probably going to be some narcissistic traits where parents put their own needs ahead of the kids. That's the reason you're given all of these roles. That's the reason there's, you know, this anxious attachment or withdrawn attachment is because the parent, for whatever reason, had their own trauma, had their own um, insecurities, had their own shame or fear that they were living with, and it created these family dynamics. So do know that if you're really identifying with some of these roles in childhood, but you don't necessarily see your parent as a narcissist, as somebody that would be diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder or borderline personality disorder, because those two look very similar clinically. If you don't see that in your parents, but you do still feel like you were scapegoated or you were the golden child or you were the mascot, know that that is definitely possible. So all people have narcissistic traits. In dysfunction, we have a tendency to amplify those narcissistic traits, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we grew up in a narcissistic family, okay? However, many of us did grow up in narcissistic families. Many of us did grow up with traits where a parent, you know, actively tried to sabotage or to mold children into a role that would serve them instead of being a parent that was serving their children and trying to help their children develop into healthy individuals, it kind of flipped on its head and they were trying to get their children to be molded into some sort of role that would provide them with narcissistic supply or the ability to escape any sort of shame or fear or difficult feelings or difficult memories they might have had about their own childhoods. Okay, so what is the scapegoat? As we talked about last week, the scapegoat is the role where the parent offloads or projects 
any sort of self-criticism, shame, fear, feelings of inadequacy, feelings of guilt onto the child. So in this system, the scapegoated child is held responsible for all of the family's problems, any conflict that might happen, or any kind of challenges that the family might face. So kind of the overarching idea is our family's completely healthy. We have a very perfect, well-put-together family, and everything would be wonderful if we just didn't have this villain in our midst. This villain is there trying to thwart our happiness. They are the person that creates all the contention, creates all the problems, creates you know, all of the chaos in the home. It's not me as the parent. It's not our family dynamic as a system. It is this person that is responsible. And before we go any further, I have had this question as well. Is there ever just one scapegoat or can there be multiple scapegoats? The answer is both. Sometimes one person is targeted and they are held responsible for everything. And in other systems, the scapegoating role is kind of moved around the family depending on the circumstances. So you might find that, you know, everybody kind of is scapegoated to a certain extent, or there may be one person that is the typical scapegoat. They're the ones held responsible for all the conflict and all the chaos and anything that goes wrong in the home, even if they weren't directly involved. This can be overt, meaning that there is verbal abuse. The scapegoated child is bullied, is actively told that they're the problem, is actively told that they're deficient somehow or that, you know, there's something not right with them, that they're broken. Or it can be more covert, which it might be more passive aggressive or kind of alluding to things um, or just kind of a feeling that parents withdraw whenever there's conflict from a specific child or the child that they're holding responsible and that they give love and attention whenever that child is obeying the family script. You may have felt scapegoated, but it may be harder to pinpoint because maybe you lived in a covert dysfunctional family in which passive aggression and sort of this allusion to the fact that there's something wrong with you kind of happened. And it's harder to put your finger on why it felt so bad to be you in the family. So just know it can be several people. It can be one person. It can be really visible that something is wrong, or it can be much more covert and harder to put your finger on the pulse of what's going on. And all of that is valid. Just know all of that is valid. If you had these feelings that you were held responsible for the problems in the family, if you felt like you were held more responsible than other people, if you felt like you never could do anything right, all of that is valid. And even if other people don't agree with you, that still gets to be valid as your reality. And we can work from there. No one else has to agree with you that you were the scapegoat. No one else has to agree with you that you know, you might've been bullied or held responsible for the pain in the family. If that was your reality, that shaped how you viewed life and how you lived life. And that's where we heal from is from our reality, not other people's reality. We heal from what we experienced and how we interpreted things. Okay. The next way to know who the scapegoat is, is you are often accused of being the troublemaker if you speak out about the dysfunction. So as long as you were playing the game that everything's perfect, we're a happy family, we're super close, there was no scapegoating. But the moment you spoke up and said, hey, that hurt my feelings, or hey, that's not right, or hey, that's abusive, or hey, this doesn't feel good, or you're being mean, the moment we do that, we get scapegoated. If you were that person, and for some of us, the first time that happened is when we started questioning our high demand religions and we started speaking even privately with people about that. If we started being really honest about, you know, I'm not sure if this is what I believe. I find some problems here. This has been emotionally difficult for me to be in this system. You might find that, you know, you start getting scapegoated at that point. We just had LDS General Conference this past weekend, and there was a whole talk that scapegoated anyone who's questioning and speaking openly about it. Um, Neil Anderson, he's one of the leaders in the Mormon church. 
he actually compared people who leave and speak openly about that to Judas in the Bible, which is like the ultimate traitor. And so I've been talking about that on Instagram because a lot of people have been like, you know, that talk really bothered me, but I'm not sure why. The reason it bothered you is because it was scapegoating. It wasn't overt scapegoating. I mean, if you know what you're looking for, it's pretty obvious. But for those of us who grew up sort of being mildly scapegoated, it didn't make sense why we were having feelings about it. And so I'm talking about those things on Instagram because when you're compared to Judas, like he doesn't directly compare you to Judas. He talks about people who leave and then he talks about Judas and what Judas did to Jesus. And there's that unspoken bridge there that people who are speaking out about the church are like Judas. And so it's this like covert scapegoating and it does leave us feeling really misunderstood, unsafe to express our feelings, unsafe to express what's going on for us. We feel lonely and disconnected. We might feel betrayed. We might have all of these feelings. So this happens in family systems where when we speak up, we're often scapegoated, but this happens in religious systems as well. So when we speak up, we become the problem. We're the ones causing the conflict. We're the ones that are the troublemakers. We're the ones that, you know, are causing all kinds of contention and bringing bad feelings into the group when that's actually not true. Those bad feelings have existed and that disconnection has existed and the abuse and the harm have been going on. It's just everyone was too afraid to talk about it. So instead of being like, oh, thanks for bringing this up to our awareness, we're going to investigate that. Instead, they blame you and say, you're the problem. Like, we didn't have any problems before you came along. Then you started talking about this. So obviously, you're the problem, not, oh, we have problems in the system. Thanks for bringing those to our awareness. And then one of the last things to know if you're the scapegoat is often you get accused of the behavior that the scapegoater is actually doing. So you might have a scapegoater that is using dehumanizing or shaming language against you. And when you get mad about it, they call you the abuser. They say that you're being abusive or you're being mean. So sometimes that can also happen where the scapegoater is actively doing something and then will actually accuse you of being that person. So they might be lying about something. And when you call out the lie, they might call you the liar. Or when you decide to set boundaries and take care of yourself, they might say that you're being selfish and taking advantage of them. Things like that. They'll accuse you of things that they're actually doing. And they hold you responsible for everything that goes wrong. It's super frustrating and it's actually really, really harmful to our sense of self-worth. Now, let's talk about why this happens. So it would be easy to get caught up in this idea that people who scapegoat are just evil, awful people. And it's actually not the case. So people that scapegoat are emotionally immature. They are often steeped in fear and shame. They haven't been given the tools to work through fear and shame, and they've often stuffed those feelings inside of themselves, sometimes for decades. And the more that piles up, the more overwhelming it is, and the more unsafe it feels to examine those things. So let's say, you know, they had had some dysfunction or some trauma from their childhood, but had been given tools in their 20s to deal with it. We might have a lot fewer problems now that they're in their 60s or 70s. But if you've been stuffing this stuff for 60, 70, 80 years, it's going to be a lot scarier to start examining it. It feels overwhelming because you have decades of trauma that is built up and you probably have a very deeply ingrained neurological pathway that tells you when you feel these feelings, it means you're a bad person. It means that you're broken. It means that you're unworthy of love and belonging. And so what is going on is when these people have kids, they offload all of this baggage onto this child so that they don't have to do that difficult work. It feels too scary. It feels overwhelming. It brings up a lot of shame, a lot of fear, and they don't know how to handle those things. So instead, they make someone else, they project it 
onto someone else. So if I'm feeling bad, it must not be me because I'm a good person. It's like a self-defensive armor that they've got on. It must be someone else. That's kind of the thinking that's going on. It can't be me because I'm a good person. It must be someone else. And so when we're not able to hold ourselves in shame or in fear or in grief or in some of these big emotions that we have when we have childhood trauma, then one of the protective measures that we subconsciously engage in is we project them onto other people and assume that other people are the problem, not us. And most of the time, this is done subconsciously. Your parent didn't make a conscious decision to have a scapegoat in the first place or that that scapegoat was going to be you. Or if you made decisions where the scapegoat role changed around and became you, it's not like your parent was like, okay, well, so-and-so has been the scapegoat for a long time. And now this person's doing that. And I actually think they're a better candidate for the scapegoat now. So I'm going to make them the scapegoat. It is not that conscious. If it was, I think a lot of our parents, because they do love us, even in really dysfunctional families, our parents often love us as best they can. And I think if this were conscious for many of our parents, they would realize how harmful this behavior is. But because it's subconscious, it doesn't even cross their awareness. And because that need to protect themselves from fear and shame and from these really difficult feelings is so intense, they're not looking at the behavior. Like their brains are literally glossing over the behavior. Any sort of you know conflict they might be having inside, their brains are glossing over it in order to protect their sense of self. Because remember, our brain's primary objective is to keep us alive and to help us feel as little pain as possible. And so we have to actually consciously override that sometimes and feel through childhood pain, feel through the pain of feeling shame or fear in order to heal and to grow. And frankly, our parents didn't have the tools. And now that we do have the tools, there's so much baggage that often it feels completely overwhelming to their nervous system to think about beginning to heal. For some people, it may be impossible. They may never heal. And that is going to be a process that we'll hold ourselves through coming to like this place of acceptance of you might not be capable of healing to a point where you could apologize or recognize the harm that you've done. And I will hold myself in my pain. I will validate myself and I will come to terms with what happened and find closure. Okay, so our parents subconsciously choose us to hold all the pain so that they can continue to believe this version of themselves that they're a good person, they're not the problem, they can offload whatever pain came from their childhood, and they don't have to look at it. And again, if it were conscious, they wouldn't do this very likely. But because it's subconscious, this is what happened. And it allows the family to continue the fairy tale that the family is functional. They're a healthy family. There are no problems here except for this one villain child that seems to be the problem and can't get with the story. (sighs) Now, what makes you chosen as the scapegoat? This is fascinating because it is different for every single family. So in one family, it depends on what the parents value. If your parents value academics, for instance, and you don't do well academically, you might become the scapegoat because you're not upholding the family values. You're not upholding the story that they're trying to present to the world. If you don't keep quiet about dysfunction, so if you observe the dysfunction and you don't stay quiet about it, You might become the family scapegoat because you're the whistleblower. You won't just let that stuff slide under the carpet and pretend it's not there. You bring it up. You're very vocal about what you see. And because you're vocal about what you see, they scapegoat you to discredit you so that when you do speak up, people don't believe you. That's really what it's about. Occasionally, someone will be scapegoated because their parents are jealous of them. So if your mother really wanted to be popular in high school, for instance, and you are, you might get scapegoated because you are the thing that she wished she was. 
or if you're incredibly intelligent, or if you're gifted in dance or in music or something, you might be scapegoated because your parent is actually jealous of what you have or what you're achieving. Lots of different ways that we can become the scapegoat, but let's talk about the process of how that happens so that you understand how you got in this role in the first place and how did you start buying into it? Because many of us aren't just scapegoated by our parents. Eventually, we start becoming our own scapegoaters. And until we become conscious of it, we have that voice inside of our head telling us that we're not worthy, telling us that we're the problem, telling us that we can't do anything right, telling us that no one wants us around. And as long as we're doing that, we sabotage our own happiness, our own success, our own ability to live independently and to live these self-fulfilled lives. And we can't get to a place of self-worth when we're constantly sabotaging that sense of worth. So let's understand how we got to this place, okay? So I'm going to be looking at my notes over here, but these notes are coming from Dr. Romani. She is on YouTube. She's a psychologist. She deals specifically with narcissism and all the different like dynamics of a family that are part of a narcissistic household. And it is brilliant. Her work is actually super helpful. It's really easy to understand. I love what she's been putting out there. Um, and it's really helped me to understand dysfunctional family dynamics a lot. So go check out Dr. Romani's YouTube page. I will put a link in the show notes as well. So let's talk about the process. So first of all, the parent identifies a child or children as the problem. And they do this subconsciously. Again, there's something about that child that either reminds the parent of their own shame, dysfunction, childhood trauma, whatever, or there's something that causes jealousy or conflict inside of the parent, or that child just won't get with the family program. They're unwilling to play by the rules of the dysfunction. Often those children, the ones that won't play by the rules, they're often whistleblowers. They are talkative. They'll speak to other people about what's going on. They're not bullied into staying silent. Those children are often empathic. They're usually mentally more aware or emotionally more aware, and it can cause problems in a family that runs off of this basis of emotional immaturity and we don't deal with our feelings. We dissociate. So first, the child is deemed the problem. Then next, what happens is once you accept your role as the problem, then you agree basically to take on the role of the scapegoat in order to belong in the family system. Now, what I want us to understand is that we will sacrifice almost anything to belong, especially as children, because as children, we're not fully formed yet. We're one of the few animal species that give birth to babies that can't take care of themselves. And in fact, it's years until they're fully formed and able to take care of themselves because of our huge brains. Like we couldn't fully gestate and come out, we would absolutely destroy our mothers if we did that, right? Like our poor mothers, they'd have to carry us for years, not months. And so what happens is we're born and we're helpless and we learn more skills, but we still need adult caretakers to take care of us up to a certain point. And so as children, we're very vulnerable. Belonging is incredibly important because we need to get our needs met in order to survive. Belonging is absolutely essential for survival, particularly when we're children. And so we will sacrifice almost anything. We'll sacrifice our well-being. We will sacrifice the truth. We will take on the role of the scapegoat in order to belong to a family system, to have a place, and to get our needs met. And so you likely did this as well. Subconsciously, you agreed, fine, I will be the problem child. If you will feed me, house me, clothe me, and give me some semblance of family, love, and belonging. All right. Next, what happens is once you stop resisting this role and you fully accepted, I am the problem, then what happens is the group stops resisting you as well. So they're not fighting you anymore because you have fully accepted this role of I'm the problem, I'm the scapegoat, everything is my fault. So it becomes sort of a contract between family members. They get to avoid their problems and you have a place to belong. You have a family that you can belong to. Your role might suck. 
Your role might be really crappy, but you have a role, you have a place, and that's how it works. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Once you've fully assimilated into this role of the scapegoat, now they start to gaslight you. (laughs) So once you've fully accepted that you're the scapegoat, you're the problem, then they flip the narrative. So they're causing the pain that is causing you to have dysfunction, but then they flip the narrative and now you're the patient. Often this happens whenever uh, parents take their kids to a psychologist, because remember, they're not aware that they're the ones causing your problem. Most of the time, they're not aware that they are offloading their problems onto you. They're not aware that they're causing you to have anxiety or depression or, you know, some sort of behavioral difficulty. They're not aware of that. All they see is this person is not functioning the way a healthy person would function. And often they take you to a therapist. And so they take you to a therapist or a doctor, but they don't tell the doctor or the therapist the entire story. They don't talk about the dysfunction that's happening in the home because remember, you're there to shield the rest of the world from the dysfunction. You're there to be the person that takes all the blame for all the conflict and everything that's not going right in the family. So they don't tell the doctor or the psychologist, oh yeah, well, there's alcoholism or oh yeah, like there's some family abuse or oh yeah, like I'm depressed all the time. Um, And so I'm not present emotionally or I'm abusive or whatever. They don't say any of that. They just come in and say, I don't know what's going on. This person, you know, has obsessive compulsive disorder or they're doing drugs. I don't understand why. Or, you know, they're going out and having sex with the whole baseball team or, you know, they're perfectionistic and depressed and they have anxiety like they have this all this anxiety disorder. I don't know what's going on. Of course, we have those things going on. Of course, because we're trying to deal with both the dysfunction that we can't talk about and being blamed for all of the dysfunction. Of course, we're freaking out. Physically, we're freaking out. Emotionally, we're freaking out. Mentally, we're freaking out. And we're doing whatever we can to keep ourselves safe. Of course, we go there, though, and we get considered the patient. We're now the mentally ill one. We're now the broken one. We're now, you know, whatever. We're the problem. And then the person that was causing the pain, so the caregiver, the scapegoater, now gets to be our healer or our savior. And this is where it gets really, really tricky because you may have had a parent that really convinced you that you were incapable of taking care of yourself, incapable of making decisions incapable of doing the right thing because look at your drug addiction, look at your alcoholism. I mean, look at the bad decisions that you've made sleeping around, getting pregnant. Look at you. You're clinically depressed. You can't take care of yourself. I mean, you get anxious. If we go to a place where there's any strangers that you don't know, of course you can't do this on your own. And so they begin to infantilize the scapegoated child. They begin to treat that child as the patient. And then the parent shows up and they get to get their narcissistic supply from being needed. So now they're the problem solver. They're the savior, the healer. And so they might bail you out financially and enable you in other ways. They show up almost as your enabler as a way to prove that they're a good person. So they get that further supply of, I'm a good person. Look at how much service I provide for my child. But at the same time, they're the ones creating the pain in the first place. So they're creating the pain. You can't talk about the pain. You get scapegoated for the pain. And then they try to fix you. And when it comes to high demand religion, they often try to fix you by preaching to you, by making you go to your ecclesiastical leaders. They are the ones that are praying for you in front of the altars and lighting the candles for you. They're the person that's taking you to rehab very publicly, I might add. They're the ones taking you to rehab. They're the ones that are bailing you out. They're the ones giving you a place to live in their home because they're just such a good Christian. They're just such a good person and they love you so fiercely, but all the while they also were the ones that were creating the pain in your life that you were trying to numb. This gets crazy making because often what happens is the person who's been scapegoated 
feels a lot of anger or disgust or sense of betrayal towards the person that's been scapegoating them. But if they're also in that role of the savior, they might feel really guilty feeling that way. They might feel like, oh, well, I can't feel this way because, you know, mom and dad let me live with them whenever I got that divorce or mom and dad like took me in or they helped me raise my kid or they've taken me to rehab five times. So just know that it can get really like iffy right here. It can get really, really tricky because that dichotomy can make you feel like you're crazy because that's what gaslighting is meant to do. It's meant to make you feel like you don't know what's going on. That's the whole premise of gaslighting. Now let's talk about the ways that you probably coped. As an adult, you probably tried to cope with this role in several different ways. So one of the first ways we've already talked about, you may have tried to numb. If you have all of these feelings and you can't talk about them, it's not safe. You can't process them. You're not allowed to feel anything negative because if you express anything negative, it's more ammunition that they can use against you. It actually puts you in a vulnerable spot where you can be abused more. So you may have learned to stuff anything that wasn't happy or didn't fit the family narrative. And over time, when we stuff feelings, if you've ever read the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, so fantastic. It talks about the trauma we store in our bodies. And there is definite trauma that comes with being the scapegoat in the family. So you may have shoved and stuffed all of these emotions in your body, but it was really uncomfortable, just like it was for your parent. Remember, I talked about like the longer we've stuffed those things into our bodies, the more uncomfortable it is to confront those things. And the more shame we feel about sharing those things, the more we have shame stories about what those feelings inside of us mean. It creates this whole scapegoating culture creates shame. It creates this sense of, I feel bad things that I'm not allowed to express, which means I'm a bad person. And so I'm going to keep that secret and silent because otherwise I will be judged. And it creates a lot of turmoil inside of ourselves and it really destroys our sense of self-worth. That feels terrible to us. It feels like life or death. And we try to numb that pain because it has no place for it to go. And we may numb with all kinds of things. We may numb with physical ailments. Unexplained physical ailments can sometimes be evidence of trauma that we're storing in our body. It might look like addiction. So alcohol, drug addiction, workaholism, shopaholism eating, like compulsively eating, sleeping for too long. It can look like all kinds of addictions. It might look like anxiety or depression, and it can look like obsessive compulsive disorder. So you may have learned to control and to numb all of these feelings by doing these other behaviors that either dissociated you from your body or gave you a sense of control in your life so that you could continue to function and make it to adulthood. The next way you may have dealt with this is self-sabotage. So deep inside, many scapegoats don't feel deserving of good things. And so when good things start to happen, you may subconsciously sabotage those things because you don't feel like you deserve them. And so when things get too good, you may feel like, I don't deserve this. I'm not a good enough person. And you may do something that makes that end or that destroys the thing that you've built, whether it's a relationship or a business or just your peace, you might find yourself sitting at home, just enjoying the peace and then create some sort of chaos in your life because being in peace feels uncomfortable and you don't feel worthy of it. Notice if this is a pattern in your life, if when things are going good, you have a tendency to do something that makes them more chaotic or you bring some sort of drama to the table because you don't feel worthy of good things. And you're trying to bring that thermostat back to where you're comfortable. If you've ever read The Big Leap, I'm trying to remember Gay Hendricks, I think is his name. 
haven't looked at that book in a couple of years, but if you've ever read the book, The Big Leap, he talks about this, how we all have like an internal thermostat of what we feel we're worthy of having and achieving and enjoying. And when we get past that thermostat, we start to get really uncomfortable. And so we'll sabotage parts of our lives in order to bring the temperature back down. A thermostat is set at a certain temperature. So if your thermostat is set at 70 degrees, you're comfortable with 70 degrees. And it's completely comfortable to get all the way up to 70 degrees. But once you start exceeding what you feel like you're worthy of, you will self-sabotage just like a thermostat will kick on the heater or kick on the air conditioner to bring that temperature up or down in order to meet that 70 degree mark and keep it there. Becoming aware of what we think we're worthy of, where that thermostat is set can be a way for us to begin to challenge those beliefs and to raise the thermostat so that we're able to accept more success, more love, more belonging, more happiness, peace, joy, all those things. All right, bullying might be a way that we handle being the scapegoat. When you have been bullied overtly or covertly, you might channel that pain by bullying others. And you learn from the narcissist. You learn from the person with the dysfunction. I love how Dr. Romani says this. She says, you learn from the narcissist how to perfect the art of strategically giving and withholding your coveted approval to command both admiration and fear. So this can lead to narcissism of our own, this bullying, this, I am trying to be like the narcissist. So maybe they'll like me better and I'm channeling my pain and you may be very successful and you may be very confident looking on the outside. You may be the queen bee at school. You may be, you know, that feared boss at work, but underneath there's a lot of pain and insecurity. And we take that out on other people by bullying them. And we do to others what the narcissist did to us. The next way that we may cope with being scapegoated is we may take on the role of the victim. And as much as you despised and hated being bullied, being belittled, it's what you're used to. And so sometimes what happens is when we take on this role or this persona of being the victim, we will seek out other abusive individuals and we'll get in friendships with them. We will get in work relationships with them. We'll take them on as partners and spouses because that's what we feel most comfortable with. We hate it, but we know the rules of that game. And so we'll gravitate there because we know how to be involved in this manipulative game. We know the stance. And so if you find yourself kind of repeating this pattern where all of your friends scapegoat you or your partner scapegoats you or your boss does, get curious with that and ask yourself, am I playing an old role here? Did I just kind of slip into that role? Because what happens is it's almost like we have a neon sign on our forehead that says, hey, I was scapegoated and I know how to be manipulated to take on all the responsibility of the problems so that you can feel better about yourself. And so we can kind of magnetize people to us because that's what we're comfortable with. And again, just getting curious with ourselves and noticing where those patterns are coming up can be a healthy first step to healing. Highly recommend therapy as well for any of these roles. None of these roles we're talking about are healthy. There are some that are maybe more socially acceptable And there are others that are less socially acceptable, but all of them underneath, we're going to have shame lying underneath. We're going to have insecurity. We're going to have attachment issues. There's a lot of things that happen when we're the scapegoat. We don't feel safe with ourselves or with other people. That's the underlying problem. I don't feel safe being me because I'm afraid that I am inherently flawed and broken and that I break everything I come into contact with. That's kind of the underlying feeling for a scapegoater is I am the problem and I ruin everything. And that can bleed over into all places in our lives. It can be absolutely devastating. Okay, the next one is the overachiever. And we've been talking about this on the Facebook group. We've been talking about the family hero Sometimes the family hero is also scapegoated. So the family hero is the person, they become a perfectionist. They overachieve. They're trying so hard to do all the things and be perfect so that their scapegoater loves them. 
so that their scapegoater can't find a flaw with them. Because think about it, if you're always the problem, and if you're the person that's blamed for everything that goes wrong, what you may try to do is you may try to be perfect. I will overcome all the flaws. I won't let them see any flaws, and then they'll have no reason to scapegoat me anymore. And this can lead to some serious burnout. It also leads to self-worth issues and imposter syndrome because on the outside, we're trying to be perfect, but on the inside, we feel inadequate and we feel like we're just, we're not enough. And if people find out that they'll abandon us or ridicule us or bully us again. And so this one, while it's way more socially acceptable to be the overachiever, it is not healthy. It is just as not healthy as being the bully or being the victim. Because underneath there is this idea of, I have to be achieving things and I have to be doing all of this so that people will love me, like me, and allow me to stay. And if I quit achieving, if I get sick or if I just get too tired, or if I am clinically depressed, whatever it is, you can tell I know this role really well. I never felt like I was the scapegoat. I felt like maybe I was scapegoated, but I wasn't the scapegoat in my family. But man, did I take on this perfectionistic overachieving role, the like family hero role. I know this feeling intimately. Whenever I was diagnosed with clinical depression, my biggest fear was now I can't do all the things that I usually do because I'm not okay. And people are going to leave me. One of the most amazing things that happened during that time in my life is a, I was getting therapy. So therapy was really helpful to validate that what I was doing was really overwhelming and like way too much for one human to do. And that my feelings were valid about my growing up experience. My feelings were valid about my life in the present at that time. But I think one of the coolest things that came out of that is I really was convinced that my friends and my husband, if they really knew who I was, that they would abandon me. And that was my darkest, lowest point. And Kevin didn't go anywhere. And it actually was really helpful for me to realize like, that's the lowest I think I will ever get. And he didn't run away screaming. And if he can handle that, then he could probably handle whatever imperfection I feel like is inside of me. It really was a pivotal point for me healing. So if you're the overachiever, therapy is super helpful. And having a supportive group of friends that love you and are willing to accept you as you. If you don't have friends like that, look for a recovery group. There are tons of recovery groups for narcissistic abuse. Tons. Lots of recovery groups online and in person. I would recommend if you identify with some of these things to go see if you can join one of those groups to have a healthy space to say, hey, this is what I experienced. And to have people say, yeah, I get that. Like, I'm there with you. And it doesn't mean you're broken. Your family system was dysfunctional and maybe broken, but you're not broken. You were just given the role of the broken person. Another role we might take on is the follower. So. Normal mistakes were often used against the scapegoated person. So just making normal everyday mistakes was seen as evidence that you're flawed. And it was used against you as ammunition. And because it was used against you, you may have gotten to a place where you didn't feel comfortable making mistakes. You didn't feel comfortable making choices for yourself because it could lead to mistakes. So you may find yourself being a chameleon around other people and adopting their personality. You may find yourself letting other people make choices for you. If you're the kind of person that when you're trying to figure out what you're going to wear or how you're going to cut your hair or what you're going to do with your kids, you go and you pull everyone in your life to get all of their opinions about something that really is a decision that just you should make. This might be something that's going on for you. You don't feel confident in your own ability to make decisions for your life. And it feels safer if you have a bunch of other people tell you what to do versus just making that decision for yourself. Because then if it goes wrong, it's not your fault. It is all these other people told me to make this choice, make this decision. And we do this in order to get approval and validation as well. If I don't know who I am, but I become you, 
then it's more likely that you're going to love me and validate me and give me approval, especially if we've been raised with a narcissist. Becoming like the narcissist was the quickest way for us to get love and approval and validation. So just know that might be a way that you've been coping with being the scapegoat in your family too, is being really indecisive and letting other people make decisions for you or taking on the personality traits of other people. Now, as we're going to end, let's talk about how we begin to heal. The first thing I want you to know is it's taken decades to get to where you are. Remember, neural pathways are carved out over time. The longer we've been performing a behavior or thinking a thought or having a belief, the longer it can take to change that. So I want you to recognize that it's going to take some time, give yourself some grace and some understanding and some compassion as you're working through this. You're not going to decide, I'm not going to be the scapegoat anymore and never have that behavior again. Today, you might decide, I'm not going to be the scapegoat anymore, and I am open to learning how to undo that. And you may practice some of the things we're talking about, and sometimes it'll go really well, and sometimes you'll revert back to your old way of doing things, and all of that is normal, okay? So it's going to take some time, and it's going to take some practice in order to get out of these habits. The first thing I want to talk about is challenging the lies you were fed. This is going to take some awareness practice. When I very first started, I actually would set aside a time to just do what I call vomit journaling, which is where I put a pen to paper and I write for a certain amount of time. I don't write something specific. Whatever pops into my head, I write onto the paper. I don't worry about if it makes sense. I don't worry if it's grammatically correct. I don't worry about the punctuation. I just write what is in my head. The reason we do this is because they've shown that writing can actually engage your subconscious mind and allowing yourself to write whatever pops up into your head is going to bring up some of those subconscious things to the forefront. I do find it is helpful to ask myself a question before I begin vomit journaling. So whatever it is I'm wanting an answer to, I'll write at the top of the page. So you might ask yourself, like, in what ways have I been scapegoated or um, what are some of the lies I tell myself? You can ask yourself those things and then just write. Don't worry about if you're answering the question, just write whatever comes up. Um, This comes from a book called The Artist's Way, and it has been incredibly helpful. So there's a book called The Artist's Way, and they have daily pages that you're supposed to do, and it's adapted from that. You're just writing whatever comes up, and it's a way for you to kind of get those things from your inner knowing up to the surface, up to the consciousness where you can read it later with your consciousness and say, oh my gosh, I wrote that. Okay, let's examine that. So challenge the lies you were fed. So first we bring them up to the consciousness. And second of all, we challenge them. Is this true? And we put that thought on trial. Let's say you have a thought of, I don't deserve happiness. Says who? What is the evidence for that? It's going to be really easy to find the evidence that supports our existing belief because remember, we've been in confirmation bias. Our brains have been pulling up evidence for this for years. So on one side of the column, I fold my piece of paper in half. On one side of the column, when I'm taking a thought to court, on the left side is everything that supports it. I don't deserve happiness because boom, 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 boom. Those thoughts will come pretty easily. Then we're going to act as the prosecutor of that thought. So the defense will come really easily. The prosecution, on the other hand, is going to be a little bit more difficult. But I want you to push as if you are the best prosecutor, you know, on your case. Really look for evidence. How do I know that I am worthy of happiness? What do I see in other people's lives? What do I know about myself? What have other people told me? What are compliments I can remember? When are times that I have felt happy and it felt really good? Write all of those things down. Really allow yourself to make the case that that thought is a lie. It is provably false. You could win a case in court because it is provably false. And it's that kind of challenging that you're going to do in order to start to rework the thoughts in your head. So the next time that that thought comes up of I'm not worthy of happiness, 
already your brain's going to be like, what? I mean, last time we told ourselves that we took ourselves to court and actually there's a pretty good case that maybe we are worthy of happiness. And the more we catch it, question it and take it to court, the easier it is for us to begin to believe, actually, maybe I am worthy of happiness. And slowly over time, that neurological pathway changes and we begin to believe something different. I also find it helpful to label that voice. Often when you're the scapegoated person, it's the scapegoater's voice in your head telling you that you're not worthy, telling you that you're a mistake, telling you that you ruin everything. See if that voice inside your head, is it your own voice or is it someone else's voice? Whose voice is it? And even if it's not someone from your life's voice, I find that giving it a name is really helpful. You can call it Karen. You can call it my evil twin. You can call it Satan if you want to. Whatever you want to call it, give it a name. Understand that it's not you. That is a voice that was put inside your head. And it's there for your survival. It's trying to keep you in check. It's trying to keep you from being ridiculed. It's trying to keep you from being bullied. It's trying to keep you safe. It is part of dysfunction that is internalized, but it's trying to keep you safe. Because when you were a child, it was very unsafe. Those things were going to be said to you if you acted out. And that voice is trying to keep you from acting out so you don't get ridiculed and bullied and humiliated in public. It's also trying to keep you from being rejected. So understand that that voice is trying to protect you in its own crazy twisted way. And you get to question it. It's a distorted voice from your childhood. It is not you. It's not telling the truth. And it's not keeping you safe anymore. You're no longer a child that needs to play by the rules in order for your parents to feed you, house you, and clothe you. You're an adult that is able to feed, clothe, and house yourself and care for yourself emotionally and mentally. And if your parents want to be a part of your life and play by the rules, like play by your boundaries, right? So that they can be a healthy part of your life, great. And if they don't, you don't have to have them in your life or you can limit how much you have them in your life. That is a choice that you can make for your own safety. So do know that as you're healing, you may actually find that you do need some separation It may not be like completely cutting someone out of your life. I am not advocating that. That is the answer for some people, and it may not be the answer for you. So for some people, they need complete no contact. For other people, they just need some space and they need boundaries about how and where they are willing to interact with the scapegoater in their life. And for other people, you may be able to interact even a little bit more. Scapegoating happens on a spectrum, just like everything we talk about pretty much on this podcast. So you may have had a mild scapegoater all the way up to a very malicious person that was scapegoating you and trying to ruin your life in order to make themselves feel better. Where they are on that spectrum may determine your response to them and what's healthy for you. So today, I think that is all I have for you. If you're the scapegoated person, know that you are not broken. There is nothing wrong with you. You're not the problem. You were given that role in order for someone else to feel better about themselves because they either didn't have the tools or it felt too scary for them to confront their own pain. They may have been unwilling or unable to confront that pain. And so they gave it to you and you held it as your role in the family in order to get your needs met and in order to get the love, belonging, shelter, clothing, food, whatever else it was that you needed in order to survive to adulthood, but you're an adult now and you are fully empowered to release these messages. It will take time. These messages are deeply ingrained. You're not going to give them up overnight because they have served you for a long time and you do get benefits from them, but you are capable of creating healthier methods of getting your needs met. You are capable of creating self-worth You're capable of creating a community that loves and values you, and you're capable of creating peace and calm in your life without feeling guilty. It will take practice. It will take time. It may take mental health professionals helping you out through this, and it will likely take a community that can hold you 
with kindness and empathy, where you can talk about the deeply held shame that you have in a place that is safe and a place that allows you to reclaim your story. That's what shame resilience is all about. It's finding people that you can speak your shame to that will not judge you, that will not blow up in their own shame, that will be able to hold you, validate you, and love you exactly for who you are. Just speaking it in that sort of environment diminishes it. Shame cannot handle being spoken to people who will hold it with empathy. It cannot survive it. Shame needs secrecy, silence, and judgment to grow. You've been living with that for your entire life. Find yourself a support group. Find yourself a safe friend. Find yourself a therapist where you can speak your shame and have it held with empathy so that you can learn to do that for yourself. I feel so honored that I get to be part of that journey with you. And I feel so honored that I get to learn about these things with you and heal with you. I am right there on the path with you. And I am grateful that you joined me on that journey today. And I look forward to seeing you next week as we talk about golden children in dysfunctional families as well. We're going to talk about how these two dynamics really play together and how that looks in a dysfunctional family. And we're going to go through all of what we just went through with the scapegoat for the golden child next week. Thank you for joining me and I will see you next Sunday.